we, we can often feel pretty limited. Uh, we feel limited by our lack. We feel limited by our disposition that was given to us by our parents. We feel limited by the family history that we inherited. We feel limited by our circumstances, limited by our responsibilities, limited by our psychological makeup, limited by our Enneagram type, limited by our social class that we were born into or the social class we're trying to get into and be a part of. And so we, we sense that. Every, every day we sense the limitedness of, of our life. And, and what we do to make up for it is, is we aim for proficiency, right? We, we podcast our way through our commutes. We, we take Coursera classes. We hunt down people that we think can tell us how to live. And we aim for any sort of feeling of competency and proficiency, and the, the hard thing is, we were, we were sitting, um, a few of us were sitting with a, a, this you know, church, Australian church leader and speaker yesterday, and he was saying that um, what he's realizing, even the most talented, equipped people, you know, pastors he's seen in the cities, what he's realizing is that the, the, the time for proficiency seems to be over. He, he, he seems that, uh, it, he, it seems to him that there's a point where, where you could do all you can, and you could fill yourself up with as much knowledge, tools, resources, capital, friendships, and networking, you know, events. And you could fill it, fill it all up. And the greatest feeling of helplessness happens when you've done all those things and you still feel weak. And when we reach the end of proficiency, we built the lives and the careers that we've always expected and we aim for. And, and then in that moment, we feel weak and helpless. That's, that's the weakest and most helpless we, we've ever felt before. And so the question this morning is, what do weak people, what hope do weak people have in prayer? What hope do um, people who, who can understand some level of vulnerability, what hope do we, do we have in prayer? Um, we're, we're in a series on prayer. We've been, we've been moving through it, talking about our need for God's presence and and. Our, the need of prayer to decenter ourselves. Um, but this morning, the primary text that um, was on the calendar is this text between a widow and a judge. And there's, there's three parts. Um, first, there's, there's a, a principle I think we can pull out. Um, there are constraints that we see in, in this passage as well as the verses right before it. And I also think there, there's a motivation that we can pull away. Okay, so there's a principle, there are constraints and there's a, a motivation. Um, we'll, we'll move it one to, uh, through one at a time. We'll start with the first, the principle. And, and let me read the first three verses here. And he, and he told them, he, Jesus, told them a parable in the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Jesus tells the story of two main characters, this widow and a judge, and the implications of having these two main characters would have been very clear to the original hearers of the story. Uh, we have a widow who is so much going up against her. There's various levels of adversity that she's facing. First, there's, there's adversity when it comes to power dynamics. On a spectrum of power and privilege, this widow and this judge are on opposite ends. He's a male in a male-dominant society, and he's a, a judge and an arbiter of justice, and he is, assume, we assume, significant, 
significant standing in the community. Second, not only is there um, a disparity in power, there's a disparity in economics. She's a widow, which, which symbolized in that culture ultimate vulnerability. She has, she has no male relative, we, we find, to take her case to court. And, and though the claim is unspecified, and it's likely that, that it's about material resources that she really needs. And so power, economics, and also there's a sense of risk. There's a general expectation that if a judge neglects you, there's no alternative course of action. You're doomed to live as a victim. And so you have this widow who's experienced tremendous loss, loss of connection, perhaps loss of, of love, and now she's suffering neglect at the hands of someone who's one of the more powerful people in their community. So what we find is a, a widow who, in scripture, would have been some of the most physically vulnerable and some of the most literally hungry. And, and she keeps coming and she's pressing into and imagining this world where she actually has an alternative reality. She was marked for a different, she, she was longing and hungry for, for a world marked by the sense of um, a sense of justice, of something else. So here's, here's the principle. In our weakness, we are to pray with a hunger for a reimagined world. In our weakness, we are to pray with hunger for a reimagined world. Um, and, and what, in her case, what kind of world is she seeking, right? Um, I, I think she's seeking three things. First, she's seeking a world where there's an economics of equality, right? There, this is a, a Jewish tradition that would have been un, uh, familiar with Exodus 16, 18, where it says, He that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gather, gathered little had no lack. Each gathered according to what he could eat. There's a sense that, there's a sense that everything had what they needed physically. Second, she was hungering for a politics of justice. This is um, coming from Walter Brueggemann's prophetic imagination. She's hungry for a world where the cries of the marginal are not heard or dismissed, as the noises of kooks and traitors. Third, she, she's hungering for a sense of radical compassion from those who are in places of authority, position, and power. Radical compassion that will lead to um, those in the places of authority acting on those on behalf of the lowly. And, and what, is, what, what are these marks of? This widow is hungering for the kingdom of God to break through in her situation. Um, Matthew 5 verse 8 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It was this hunger that pushed her beyond the script society was telling her to play. This, this widow in the story is vulnerable. And, and, and she's, she's experiencing this great loss of power. And there are, um, for our situations, there are a hundred things we would rather admit before we will admit that we're vulnerable. Um, we would rather drive our bodies and our families into the ground before admitting weakness. Am I right? What if the supernatural, I mean, this is the big question this morning. What if the supernatural begins at the place of our weakness? What if it took to experience something supernatural from God really happened at the place where we climbed the top of proficiency and said, you know what, I'm, all the proficiency in the world can't give me what I'm looking for. Um, the, the hard thing with this is she's praying hungry, and, and we don't know what it means to pray hungry. Um, I, I, I was working with my former boss. Um, there was this one time he got in this crazy diet. Well, not crazy. It was just a diet. For me, it was crazy. 
um, because diets are hard. And uh, he was telling me about his diet, and you know, he's working out. And it was one of those conversations where you're just like, man, are you hinting at something? Like, are you, are you telling me that, you know, I need to lose weight? Um, but, but there was a, a sentence that, that stuck out when he was telling me about his diet. He's like, you know, and the craziest thing about this diet is that in between meals, I get hungry. And it hit me. I did not know what it meant to be hungry. Right? And so, so the only way I can um, describe it, I think, is um, intermittent fasting is all the jam right now, right? So, and some of you are, are probably doing it and you're hungry right now. Um, and so it's like this, this, this sense of this intermittent fasting multiplied by, you know, some crazy diet where you're never really ever full. And, and in front of you, if you're a steak person, is the juiciest steak you've ever seen in your life. The juiciest um, most tempting thing you've ever seen, and it's sitting right before you, and you're salivating. And you're hungry with the deepest hunger you've experienced in a long time, and you see the steak, and you're salivating. Someone tells you to wait because someone just went to the bathroom on your table, and it's, it's polite in American culture to wait for everybody to sit down. And so you're looking at it, and it's juicy, and in that moment, when he finally gets back from the bathroom, and, and you see the steak, and you cut into it, and it's about to, it's about to go into your mouth. And you're just, and there's this hunger, and the kingdom of God is this, this bite, this, this bite on repeat over and over and over again, fulfilling every sort of sensation you've ever longed for. But we don't know what it means to be hungry, and that's the problem. Um, Brueggemann talks about one of the great issues um, in our culture is the sense that we've been satiated. And in the passage, it talks about how um, the, the time of, of Noah and Lot, people were eating and drinking, and there's a sense that they were satiated. And so when we're satiated, we don't, we don't know what it means to hunger and yearn for something else. We don't know what it means to hunger for an alternative reality. And we face great constraints. And so if the principle that we find that Jesus is trying to get across is that we're supposed to hunger, we're supposed to pray with a hunger for a re- reimagined world, and we don't know what it means to be hungry. Here, here are the practical constraints that we face. Two practical constraints. I'll start with the first. First, um, one, of the, one of the constraints we have in our prayer is that we want to control time. We have this deep longing to control time. Um, in the conversation with the disciples right before this one, he says this. He said to the, Jesus said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. The days of the Son of Man is talking about when Jesus is coming back. We sang about it in the song earlier. But, but you're going to hunger. He's saying that you're going to long to see me come in return. And people will say, look there or look here. Jesus is saying, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the man, Son of Man be in his day. And so he's saying that when I return, you'll see it. There's no guessing about it. You'll know that it's me. Um, but, but he's saying you, you'll have to wait. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm here now, and my kingdom is already here now, but it will not be completely here until I come again. And on that day, it's going to be so clear that it's me, but, but here's the thing. Until then, can you stay faithful to me? Can you stay hungry for me? In the story, Jesus tells of the persistent widow we do not know how many days she kept coming to Jesus. Uh, she kept coming to the judge. We, ha- we have no clue about that. We do not know how many days she waited, but it says she kept on coming. 
And at the end of the story about this widow, Jesus says to the disciples, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? And this is not only a commitment to pray with a hunger, but to pray with a commitment that says, you know, I'm going to pray for this as long as it takes. And this is hard to do because time is, time is something that we want to control. We measure investments against time. We measure our, you know, long-winded preachers against time. There's an internal clock going off in you right now, counting me down. We, we, we compensate athletes based on time. I read this article this week um, on this kind of like draft trail about the, um, this NFL lineman. Um, and, if, you know, in the NFL, you have, uh, you have these, this combine where they test you right before to see how high they're going to draft you. And they said for linemen, you know, they make him run the 40 and he was a 40-yard dash, and he was very disappointing on the 40. And so for linemen, they're like, well, he's never going to ever need to really run 40 yards, but the question is how he runs the 10-yard dash. And so what, you know, they had him run, and it was, again, it was a disappointing time, but um, it, was, it was tenths of a second that they were measuring this athlete by. Tenths of a second for him in a disappointing performance meant millions of dollars lost. We measure everything against time. We measure big guys and how fast they could run to tenths of a second. Because what we believe is that if we could just manage and control time, that we have some way of being able to control the future, to manage a a perceived future. And when we start praying, there's an internal clock that starts ticking. And in our minds, we give God a timeline to answer the things that we're praying for. And the question, and, and then we start thinking, if he, if he doesn't answer this week, that means he's not faithful. If, if he doesn't answer for these two weeks, that means he can't hear me. And Jesus is telling his disciples, can you actually trust me with the time? For a lot of us, God feels incredibly late. And some of our disappointments and doubts come from the fact that he feels incredibly late. And the question from the parable is, can you trust him with the time? Can you submit the time to him. You'll, you'll want to see the end. You'll want to see all the answers to your prayers, but can you still be faithful even when things don't happen on the timetable that you expect? And there's this quote that I go back to. Um, it's from uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. In Screwtape Letters, um, Lewis writes as though he's a, a, an older demon teaching a younger demon how to tempt a human. And there's this quote um, that's been really powerful to me in really hard situations. Um, where Screwtape writes, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he is forsaken and still obeys. looks around a universe which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Can we be faithful even in the moments when we feel forsaken? There's so much that you, you cannot control about God. And that's why he's God and, and you're not God. But can you submit the time to him? Second, not only um, do, we, do we have trouble submitting our, 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 our control of time to God, but we also um, hold expectations that cloud our vision. We hold expectations that cloud our vision. Um, and we see this a few verses earlier in front of the parable um, in a conversation between Jesus and Pharisees. And, and, and this, 
single question that the Pharisees asked is actually how this whole conversation gets kick-started. Luke 17, 20 and 21 goes like this. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And what's going on here? Um, the Pharisees go up to Jesus, and you know, the Pharisees in Scripture are these kind of like learned few who hold the, you know, the control of being able to translate for people what it means to follow God. And they ask Jesus a question, and they say, when is the kingdom coming? And Jesus did miracle after miracle in front of the Pharisees, but the, but the Pharisees were constantly dis dismissing these miracles that he was doing because they were expecting something else. They had expectations that when God would come, there would be a cosmic flex. They'd expect this heavenly show of power where God would display his might and, and, and his ability written across the skies. Instead, Jesus tells them the kingdom is not this future reality. Instead, the kingdom is in our midst. It's here and right in front of you. And the reality is they carried expectations and we all carry expectations. And the question is, will we allow Jesus to redefine our expectations? They critiqued Jesus based on these expectations and when given a choice, they opted for their own expectations over the reality and person of Jesus. But if God is truly God, we must remember that God is not beholden to our expectations. He doesn't need to fulfill whatever it is you expect from him. And, and we need to be honest this morning for some of us, and, and sometimes our deepest doubts about God are less objective than, than we like to admit. And they're not as rational as, as we like. There, you know, there are some, but, but often it's not just a, a, la, a logical equation and, and formula that, that, um, as the basis of, of our doubts. Often our doubts and disappointments with God have more to do with the fact that we place expectations on him that we feel like he did not fulfill. We conceived a way forward about how, how our life should go, um, how it should go now or should have gone, and we struggle to understand why God did not fulfill our expectations. Um, if we could only name them this morning, if we could only name and submit our expectations this morning, what are you, what are you looking for that you did not find? The Pharisees would have prayed for the kingdom to come. They, they would have been faithful in that. I, I, I assume the Pharisees would have been praying, praying, praying for the kingdom to come, but, but because they had a framework locked in their head about how things should go, they missed it. It was right in front of them, and they missed it. What, what, what are you holding to as far as an intellectual framework that keeps you from seeing the kingdom in front of you? What, do you, what are you looking for that you cannot find? What do you expect him to give that he, he chose not to give? They demanded this show of force and visibility. What they found is a Jesus who talked about impending rejection and suffering. And Jesus traded this show of force and visibility for gruesome personal suffering. And this is what we believe to be the gospel. That God entered the world to suffer and die and so that he could rise. And in his rising, he could save us. And from it, we know that God has radical compassion on those who trust in him. Radical compassion for those who trust in him. And this is what it looks like for the kingdom to break forward. Can we trust him with our expectations? Can we trust him with our expectations? I, whenever I, I think about expectations, um, a story. So uh, one of our closest friends from college, his grandparents, close friend from college, his grandparents were pioneer missionaries in Papua, right? So Papua is, um, is, is the part of, 
is, is part of, like, is adjacent to pa pa uh, Papua New Guinea, um, but it's like the Indonesian-controlled portion. And so, like, pioneer missionaries, right? So that means, like, they were laying down airstrips. They were laying down airstrips. You know, they, they feel this great call from God to reach people who don't know Jesus. And so they have grand visions about how they would reach the people of Papua, they get there, they're laying airstrips, they're lying in mud so that, you know, these, these local uh, tribes wouldn't shoot them to death. Incredible stories. And so they're there, they're laboring, and they're not really seeing anyone come to faith. They're not seeing anyone come to faith, but instead there's just this little boy that comes, like, starts playing in their area where they set up camp. This little boy starts, you know, and they're just like, God, this is great, but, but we want to see people come to faith. We want to see adults, because adults matter more. You know, I mean, if, if, if kids, I mean, often we treat them in Christian spaces, they're like half of the count, right? Um, and they have these grand visions of people coming to faith, and they're there for years, and no one comes to faith. What they find, though, as they're there for decades, is that this little boy grows up. He grows up knowing Jesus and following Jesus. And as they go back and forth from furloughs, coming home, raising support, they find that this little boy becomes a person that builds a church. And at their death, this little boy is, has, has grown into a man who's now pastoring and leading a church. And, and, and at their death, when they hold a funeral in the U.S., this, this boy who now leads this church holds a funeral for them with all the people that have come to faith because of the work they did. They prayed for re revival among tribes that they, they would lay down their indigenous, uh, their, their tribal beliefs, their animistic beliefs, and come to faith in Jesus. But what they got was a little boy who said, I, I want to play sticks near your camp. And this little boy grows up and, and does the thing that they could never do. When, when God challenges our expectations, will we welcome it? Or will we say, you were not faithful to me? I gave you so much. I did so much for you. You were not faithful to me. There's a deeper wisdom that he has that you cannot see. And so the question this morning is, can you not only trust him with the time, but can you trust him and submit your expectations? Because they are constraining us, keeping us from feeling hungry in prayer. And so if, if, if our longing for 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 our, our own expectations to be filled, um, if that's a constraint, what is our motivation? What is our motivation this morning? Um, our motivation is that God acts with power on behalf of his people. Let me read verses 4 to 8 from the parable. For a while he refused, this judge refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on, on the earth? By, by telling this parable, Jesus is telling disciples, your hope is rooted in knowing that when, when you pray, the person you are praying to acts, be, on behalf, acts with power on behalf of, of his people. He, he seems to just prove 
over and over again that he will transform us as we pray, as we pray with hunger, as we trust him with timing, as we submit our expectations. Because what he does is he shapes our character so that we can be conduits of his presence, blessing, serving, and healing the world around us. But here's, here's the truth when, we, when it comes to prayer. For God, results, results are easy. I, I really, I mean, I, I think he could have done the cosmic flex with the lights up in the sky. Um, but by his wisdom, he's shaping our character. And shaping our character takes time. So God, results are easy, but character takes time. And what does this character look like when it's lived out? When, when, when he forms character in us, we are anchored in the face of adversity. We're hopeful in the face of suffering. We're worshipful when the world around us is falling apart. And the reality is the world, when we face adversity, doesn't need more of your outrage. It needs more of the presence of Jesus. And only when we have character shaped by, by God, filled with the present, to hold the presence of Jesus, can we bless, serve, and heal the world. And this is what he does in prayer. He's doing a larger miracle in you as you pray to him than you realize. I know some this morning are saying, I, I don't feel like anything is changing in and around me. I feel like I'm in the same place for years. But let me say this morning, you're not in the same place. You're not. Um, I know it feels a bit like you're covering the same ground. But the image I think that's been really helpful to me is that of a spiral staircase, right? Like you're, you're moving up on the spiral staircase and you're seeing the same land, but, you're, but he's taking you somewhere. He's drawing you up. And as you move, as you move up, you may, feel, you may feel like you're seeing the same things, but you've changed. Things are different. And so this is why we pray. Because as we pray in the, in the face of adversity and in our weakness, the reality is this is how we know him. And we won't know him as sufficient unless we realize how, how, how much need we have. We won't know him as timely until he answers in wiser ways than you, we could ever ask for. We won't trust him as sovereign unless we find him near and intimate in moments of our greatest heartbreak. And Jesus is saying, would he find this kind of faith when he returns? So would we hunger? Would we hunger for a reimagined world knowing that a God who's compassionate and just is willing to act on our behalf. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we, we thank you because you meet us. You place us in moments of weakness so that we could, we could throw our, 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 our desires and our hunger in your direction and we say, can you meet us here because we cannot do it on our own. And so, Lord, I pray for a humility um, and a humbleness, Lord, that, that, um, that invites your presence into our lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.